tonight's reading is from Lamentations, uh, chapter 2, 1 through 10. The Lord has destroyed without pity. Lamentations 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy. With his right hand set like a foe, he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused ramparts and walls to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this week, I received a phone call from a friend I haven't talked to in actually many years. He is the leader of a new denomination that broke off from an old one. They, at the time, they felt that the old denomination was uh, not doctrinally pure, and they, they felt that they needed to break away, and I really haven't seen him um, since that start of that movement. And I, I said, how's it going? And he's a very honest, humble man, and he said, well... Yeah, you know, it's really a lot easier to be uh, against something (laughs) 
than to form a, a movement and have unity. And frankly, we've done a pretty bad job. We have continued to divide over and over again. Um, and then he paused and he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I would say that uh, the Lord is no longer blessing our movement because of our sin. Now, my friend is a, is a solid Christian, a faithful man, sound gospel preacher. He believes in God's amazing grace, his steadfast love, his comfort, his security. But he also believes that God's blessing and presence and power can be lacking in churches due to sin. There is that verse in Hebrews about the Father disciplines those that he loves. And this is a biblical principle that's not always easy to understand, but it is present in the Old and the New Testaments that God does discipline his children when we live against his ways. And the book of Lamentations is a dramatic expression of this principle. Now, last week we started off, we, uh, we took a look at the fact that this book is, is Holocaust literature. It's essentially poetry that is written in a time of of a great tragedy uh, when Babylon had wiped out Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, in chapter 1, says, you know, I know why this has happened. This is because we've broken our covenant with God. And I know that there are many problems that this raises that we could address about the the theology of suffering and the relationship to sin and suffering. We started to look at that a little bit last last week. Tonight, I want to just bracket those. I want to acknowledge those. But I want to bracket those because there's somewhere I'm trying to, uh, to go tonight with the text. Jeremiah, in chapter 1, looks over the, the rubble of Jerusalem and he says, uh, I know that this has happened because we broke your covenant. And that's really what the book of Jeremiah is about. God says, don't worship idols, as people worship idols. God says, don't practice sexual morality, as people practice sexual morality. God says, don't make alliances with other nations, they make alliances with other nations. And on and on and on it goes. And so Jeremiah confesses Israel's sins. He says, Jeremiah, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. He says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. He says, you have brought about the day you warned against. You've dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. Now, he has not forgotten that God loves them. Next week in chapter 3, we're going to see that beautiful passage where he turns to God and he talks about the faithfulness and the love of God. But right now, he sees Israel as experiencing the discipline of the Lord for their sin. And heartbroken and suffering and in shock, he looks around at the rubble. And in chapter 2, he says, God, right now I feel like you're you're our enemy. I, I feel like you've turned against us as an enemy. He says that we're tasting your anger now. He says how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He says, you know, we don't experience any of your mercy anymore. He says, The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. He says, our people don't enjoy your protection anymore. He says, you've withdrawn from us your right hand in the face of the enemy. Why is all this happening? He says, God, because you've bent your bow like an enemy. You've become like an enemy. You've swallowed up Israel. And then a few verses later, he even says, you know, you've even scorned your own altar. You've disowned your own sanctuary. 
And he says, this is so painful, such a disaster that the walls of Jerusalem themselves are weeping. So here we have, right in the middle of the Old Testament, this painful lament in which a biblical writer says, God, I, I feel like you're my enemy. Now, how do you interpret that? Well, on the one hand, one of the things that we want to keep in mind is that Jeremiah is in great grief. Like anyone in great grief, his emotions are all over the place. Chapter 3, he'll be singing about God's love. Let's face it, there are times in the Christian life when you feel like God is against you. I was talking to somebody today, or earlier this week, we were looking at this text. And he said, a couple people in the group were saying, I really struggle with this. He says, I don't. I get it. I feel that way right now. I know I'm not supposed to, but frankly, I think God's my enemy right now. Sometimes in the Christian journey, we, we feel that way, whether our theology says it's right or not. Well, there is another way in which we can understand this passage, and, and that is that God is disciplining his people after hundreds of years of their sin. And, and again, there's lots of theological questions with this, and the New Covenant is just called the loving father disciplines his children. And you, you do see it in the New Testament as well as in the Old. In the book of Revelation, uh, the Apostle John writes seven letters to seven churches, and Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, I like this about what's going on. I'm concerned about what's going on here. And if you don't change it, I'll withdraw my lampstand. In other words, I will withdraw my presence. I will uh, discipline you as a congregation. Now, God withdrawing his presence and his power from his people is part of a cycle of judgment that's repeated throughout the Bible. And it's especially clear in the book of Judges. And here's an example, if we can go ahead and put this up. I'm going to read a little paragraph from Judges 3, and we'll see each of these four phases in the cycle of judgment. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. So this is the first stage in the cycle. Israel sins. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushon eight years. So the second step, or the second phase, is God becomes angry with the people's sin, and usually in the Old Testament then turns them over to an oppressor. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord... That's the third. Israel cries out. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan to his hand. So the land had rest for 40 years. So the fourth phase in the cycle of judgment is that God delivers. And, and really, you could look at this Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people go through this cycle again and again and again. And where this comes in important as we study the book of Lamentations is lament is how a believer moves from the second phase and the third phase to the fourth phase. See, when you are experiencing God's discipline and you begin to cry out to him for deliverance, 
that's when he moves to save and heal and restore and revive. And really, when you look at the rest of chapter 2, this is what the the prophet urges Israel to do. After several verses about uh, the fact that no one is really there to save them, then Jeremiah says, uh, Arise, cry out in the night, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faith, who, 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 in faith, for they are at hunger at the head of every street. So what he's saying is, we are experiencing God's discipline because of our sin. Oh God, forgive us and move and heal and restore. He's lamenting. And these words, cry out, lift up your hands, are classic Hebrew images for repentance. Now, I'd like to give us a, another example to work on here, if we could put up the Nehemiah passage. Uh, about 70 years later, um, do we have that one in there? Um, Nehemiah chapter 1? We may not. I might not have got it there. Okay. Uh, yeah, about a generation later, there's this young man named Nehemiah who comes to power in Babylon. And remember, all the exiles have been taken to Babylon uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed. And he hears a report about how bad Jerusalem is doing. He hears about the wall being run down and just horrible things happening in Jerusalem. And God begins to burden him over coming back and doing something about this. And so he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. Now, in the Old Testament, this is the moment where we start moving back towards hope in God. When Israel starts crying out and confessing her sins and lamenting of their own sinfulness. Now, what's so interesting about this, and I underlined this, notice how Nehemiah repents. Now, Nehemiah was probably born in Babylon he not lived in Jerusalem at the time of the exile. He certainly didn't live when Israel was committing all the sins in the hundreds of years up to the exile. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, God, I'm sorry that all the people before me were wicked in their ways. He says, I confess my sin and my family's sin. And remember, he wasn't there. And that's a very important idea as we think about corporate lament this Lent. It's an important idea because it, it, it shows that in the biblical mindset, when you are part of the people of God, you are part of the whole story of the people of God, you share in all the blessings of the people of God, and you also share in their sins and failures. And so there, there is a sense in Scripture, and there are many other examples we'll go to in the weeks ahead, ahead where we lament by confessing sins that we as the capital C church have committed over our history. That's the kind of lamenting that's going on here. Now, 
there is a personal way to apply this, right? You can, you can look at your own life and you can look at this cycle of drifting away from God and God disciplining us and crying out for deliverance and God saving us. And Lent is a wonderful time to do that. To look at the places in your own life where you've drifted away and to repent and to cry out and to come back. But this Lent, I'm encouraging us to practice corporate repentance especially. And I know this, at least for me, this is the first time I've ever done this. It's the first time we've ever done it as a congregation. And so I've been asking you to pray about what are the corporate sins that God's people have committed that God has put on your heart to lament over this Lent? What are the behaviors, the practices that the church has participated in that you think break God's heart and need to be acknowledged. And it might be different for you than it is for me. We're actually going to have a service on the Saturday night before Palm Sunday uh, over at the chapel at First Presbyterian, and it's going to be a, a service of lament. Now, as I said last week, for me, uh, this, what's particularly on my heart is the church's participation in racism, uh, especially against blacks. And I know it's easy to think at this point, well, but Doug, you know, I've heard you talk about the way you love these boys on the swim team, and, and our church isn't really committing racist acts. And in fact, we seem to talk a lot about racial reconciliation. What, what is there to repent of? Well, what I'm talking about now is this Nehemiah sense of we're a part of the whole church. And so what I'm talking about is repenting about what our whole family has done to participate in racism over the last 400 years that has resulted in some of the suffering that we have today. Now, let me just give you a a couple things that I've been reading about that'll kind of frame this. White people began bringing slaves to America in the 17th century, and white ministers provided a biblical basis for enslaving black people. And they preached sermons, and one of their main points was that Abraham, the father of our faith, held slaves so that it was appropriate for a Christian to hold slaves as well. And besides this, they said, Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed after Noah fell, and therefore all the descendants of Ham were cursed and inferior to everyone else, and therefore they should be slaves as a result. Cotton Mather, uh, an influential New England Puritan, he preached a sermon at a slave hanging in 1721, and he turned to the slaves and he said, you enjoy a very easy servitude, and then he warned them that God had ordained that they be slaves, and warned them never to try to change that order. Then he looked at the man who was about to be hanged, and he told the slaves, pride goeth before destruction. Well, let's fast forward to the Civil War. White preachers argued that slavery was a gift from God because it moved people from a culture, they said, that worshipped the devil. Slavery then was a blessing because it allowed heathens to hear the gospel. And since the curse of Ham proved that black people were inferior, slavery was God's way of providing and protecting for an inferior race. 
Sarah Fitzpatrick, an elderly former slave, told a reporter in 1938 that slave owners had built a special loft for them in the white church. The preacher would first preach a sermon to the white people below, and then a second sermon to the black people in the loft, and the sermon's main message usually was, tell them to mind their master and behave themselves, and they'll go to heaven when they die. Now, from 1880 to 1940, white Americans lynched over 4,000 black men, women, and children. And sometimes, as many as 20,000 people would come out to watch the torture, which would take many hours. Pictures were taken and turned into postcards. And they would have the caption beneath them, I spent last night at the barbecue. Many of those participating were Christians. And I've spent some time researching the rationale. They felt that it was their moral duty to protect society, particularly white women, from the demonic black man who wanted to defile her purity. A Christian senator from South Carolina declared that lynching is, quote, a divine right of the white race to dispose of the offending blackamoor without the benefit of a jury. After a man was lynched for allegedly raping a white woman, one Christian explained, it was nothing but the vengeance of an outraged God meted out to him through the instrumentality of the people that caused the cremation. Now, the evangelical wing of the white church remained silent on the race problem until the 1940s. So essentially, throughout the whole lynching period, Uh, the conservative white church said nothing. In 1947, a Wheaton College professor broke the silence. He wrote an essay in a popular Christian magazine called Are the Negroes Cursed? Writers were so furious that he would address that in the essay. He was accused of being a communist and ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture that the descendants of Ham are indeed cursed. In December of 1955, the king's business the magazine of Biola University, which is where I studied for my master's degree, wrote an essay attacking racial prejudice in the church. The editors were deluged with email, or not email, with mail, asking for subscriptions to be canceled. The magazine was accused of giving in to communist propaganda and mixing religion with politics. Next, consider the civil rights movement. Most white evangelical churches did not participate, and some resisted. A historian who is a, is a Christian was asked in an interview why the evangelical church was a no-show in the civil rights movement. He says, it seems self-evident that in the main, white evangelicals, particularly in the South, were deeply invested in efforts to either uphold Jim Crow or to try to slow down its dismantling. Those who loved the old rugged cross were often also those who torched crosses in protest of desegregation. Now, I I understand that there has been progress. Um, My experience is that my black friends feel there's been uh, much less progress than my white friends. But there's also a history of several hundred years of, of racial sin that has affected the way our world is today. And here's where this gets personal. So... It's uh, spring break, my day off's on Thursday. And so there's these three young men that I've been walking with for four or five years on the swim team. 
And so I haven't seen him in a while. I call him, and I call to him. I say, hey, you want to go see King Kong? Uh, Thursday, I'll buy you lunch. And they say, fine. I say, how about the other guy? We'll call him John. And they say, oh, I don't think he can go. I said, what happened? He said, well, he's been suspended uh, again, and, and he's really struggling. So I call him. I can't get him. Find out some other things have happened. His mother's very sick. His father's incarcerated. And I've mentioned this little young man to you before. Uh, John just seems to be cursed. <laughs> it's like there is a, a power trying to suck him out of, of life. I finally got him on the phone today, and um, he decided he wanted to see a horror movie, and I told him it was too scary. But we're going to all see King Kong together. Now, John is somebody that I pray for every day. He's... Uh, He's moving towards adolescence. He's a very large boy. He has anger issues. And I worry now what's going to happen with that anger since he's not been able to get under control. And John makes bad choices. We talk about bad choices. We talk about personal responsibility. We talk about hard work. I've spent hundreds of hours with John talking about making good choices and being responsible for his behaviors. But there are things John cannot control. John's grandparents and great-grandparents were descendants of slaves who lived under Jim Crow. My grandmother went to Wellesley. My grandfather went to Columbia. And they sent my parents to private colleges. We did not start at the same place. John begins life at a disadvantaged place because of a sinful racist system that the church has helped support. And so that's why on the Saturday before Palm Sunday, I will be lamenting for John. And I'd encourage you, uh, as God puts things on your heart that break your heart and break his heart, to write your own lament. And I'll end with one I wrote this week for John. A lament for John. Lord, we are losing him. He is so angry. He is so alone. He is so lost. I can't blame him, Lord. He's on the edge of losing everything. His mother is so sick, I don't think she'll make it to 40. She is so tired. Then what will happen to John? He's growing so fast now. He's big and strong and powerful. Crazy energies flow through his body like electric jolts. Will his anger land him in prison or on the wrong end of a gun? I confess, Lord, that we, the church, have helped create the broken world that John is trying to escape. Men like me preached the sermons that kept John's ancestors in chains. Men like me wrote the editorials that gave biblical justification for keeping the races separate. We were too often not the Good Samaritan, but the Levite. I confess too, Lord, that my family and my children have benefited from the world that has resulted from this sin. I cry out to you, O God, to save John. Rescue him, Lord. Give his educators patience. Lord knows they need it. Give his mother health. Spare her life. Give his dad a second chance and let him come home from prison. 
please use us to heal the broken systems that make it so hard for John to become the man you created him to be. Amen. Thank you.